As long as we make leadership something bigger than us, we give ourselves an excuse not to expect it every day from ourselves and from each other. Drew Dudley In this episode, we interview Drew Dudley. Drew has been called one of the most inspirational TED speakers in the world, and he is on a mission to help people unlearn some dangerous lessons about leadership. As a founder and chief catalyst of Day One Leadership, he has helped top organizations around the world increase their capacity for leadership. His clients have included McDonald's, American Express, JP Morgan Chase, the United Way, and more than 100 colleges and universities. Prior to this, Drew spent eight years as the director of one of Canada's largest leadership development programs at the University of Toronto. Drew is also the best-selling author of This Is Day One, A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters that debuted at number six on the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list. As a speaker, Drew has delivered keynotes to more than 250,000 people across five continents. His TED Talk, Everyday Leadership, The Lollipop Moment, was voted one of the 15 most inspirational TED Talks of all time. In this episode, we discuss his idea of day one leadership, his experience on the patient side of healthcare, as well as leadership lessons learned from the pandemic. As always, if you would like to support us, please subscribe to the podcast and give us a positive rating. You can also connect with us on social media. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey everybody and welcome to today's episode of Leading the Rounds. Peter, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Caleb. What about yourself? I'm doing great. We are so happy to welcome Drew Dudley to the show. Drew, how are you doing? I'm doing amazing. I've got to stop doing podcasts where the hosts are this much smarter than I am, but we'll do our absolute best to hold my own in the face of uh, all you advanced degrees, scientists, brilliant people. I'm just a, I'm just a lowly non-physician, you know? I don't know if I would say that. <laughs> hey, I was talking to a biology teacher yesterday and I remembered Krebs cycle and endoplasmic reticulum. What those are are the relation, <laughs> but I remember those two terms because uh, endoplasmic reticulum is my favorite thing to say uh, randomly uh, out loud still since grade 10. So. <laughs> so, so the reason we came across Drew was actually because of his TED talk on the lollipop moment, which is something that I want to refer you guys to take a look at. It's only about six minutes long, but it is honestly one of the best TED Talks I've ever listened to. You know, each time I've watched, watched it, I listen to it a few times now, and I, and I get goosebumps just about every time I listen to it. So first of all, Drew, that was amazing, and that's, that's how we came across your work. We also had the privilege a few weeks ago of interviewing Hamza Khan, and no is one of, your, yeah, one of your students and one of the people you've been able to mentor. So that was a great time as well. And he spoke extremely highly of you. Oh, man, that's incredible. Hamza's man, if I miss anything about working at the university, it's, it's students like Hamza. And then now, you know, 10 years later, when you're getting invited to speak at companies run by your students, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. So that, that's awesome. I didn't realize that. I'm, I'm so thrilled to hear that. Yeah, so one of the things we want to jump into off the bat is your idea of day one leadership. And this is an idea you've written extensively about. You've written a book about it. You've spoken on it. But just for our audience really quick, can you break down what your idea is? What does day one leadership mean? Yeah, day one leadership is the idea that uh, there is no one day in anything you want in your life, whether it's uh, financial success, business success, uh, mental health, physical health. There is no one day that you're trying to get to that doesn't begin with a day one. And it's on day one where you identify the non-negotiable behaviors that have to be a part of every day of the rest of your life. And then you commit to those. And in the terms of leadership, what we specifically talk about is the day one process for living a life of leadership. And what are the behaviors? We help people identify the behaviors that they wanna be a part of every day. And then using some behavioral psychology tricks, we make it more likely they're actually gonna do it. Now, to just give you a little bit of background on the idea of day one, what happened with the day one process is it developed when the theory that I was presenting at the university, but I, I ran the leadership development program at the University of Toronto for about 10 years. And when we start talking about the theory we were putting in front of students there, it was pretty useless because it was always about what you're gonna do one day, right? And you're talking to young people who don't see themselves empowered as leaders 
yet. The education system often teaches us one of these untaught lessons, which is your training to make a difference one day as opposed to now. And so the idea was, all right, I've had so many day ones in my life. When this theory mixed with some of my actual experiences on a personal and professional level, it led to sort of a different hybrid approach to what leadership was, specifically an approach that could be used by everyone. And I've had so many day ones. Day one starting my own company. I left the most secure job on the planet to start this company. I worked at a university. You know how hard it is to get fired from a university? And, but the three most addictive things on the planet are crack, carbohydrates, and a salary. And if you let yourself get addicted to any one of those three things, you will start to make decisions that aren't in your best interest. Don't forget and day one of, of going from 320 pounds to 100 pounds lighter, day one of talking about mental health in a much more open way because I'm bipolar. And so for years I hid that because we live in a world where we equate mental illness with mental weakness, especially in academia. And so I hid it until I started to watch my students hide it too and watch what it was doing to them. Depression, body dysmorphia, um, their own bipolar fights, right? Uh, anxiety. And I wanted them so badly to get the help they deserve and they wouldn't do it because they were afraid of the same things I was, right? Looking weak, looking like an embarrassment to the people who supported you and being unemployable. And I had day one, and I think this drives a lot of the day one process, I had day one of a life without alcohol. Like I am powerless over alcohol, which is step one. But one thing you learn in recovery, you don't want to have a drink to, for the rest of your life. You have to choose not to have a drink today. And then you have to focus on every day as if it's your first day of recovery, because it keeps you from resting on your laurels of what you've already done. But it also keeps you from being intimidated of how many more days this fight has to go on. It's all about your behaviors today. And the day one leadership process takes that concept and says, what are the non-negotiable behaviors that will be your leadership behaviors every day? And how do we make them a part of our lives? Because for me, leadership is in individual moments of interpersonal impact, moments of kindness, moments of recognition, moments of compassion, forgiveness, those moments we all have the power to create. And it's one of the only sources of power on earth where it's accessible to everyone. Most of the power on the planet is not accessible to most of the people on the planet. These ability to create these individual moments, those are a power we all have. And we're in a world where most of the leadership on the planet comes from people who don't think they're leaders. I think that we can start to change that, but we first need to shift the idea of leadership from being about money, titles, and accolades earned over time and instead focus on individual behaviors. So we help people figure out what their values are, tie behaviors to those values, and then give them a trick to do it every day. That is a long answer, I know, but I guess it's the, please summarize your entire raison for existing. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of insight. It was driven by uh, really my fight with addiction, uh, as well as my fight with my weight, and the idea that the process through each of them isn't anything more in many ways than saying this has to happen every day and then making sure you're committed to it and then what happens over the long term in many ways takes care of itself. I've never liked the term takes care of itself because it really isn't. You're putting a ton of effort in but the end result of leadership honestly guys is ordinary things done with extraordinary consistency and what we did is we came up with a way of identifying what those things should be and making it less likely that you'll just forget them or excuse yourself out of actually doing them. Well, Drew, I want to thank you for being open and candid with us right from the get-go. Um, I think it was a fantastic answer. and I think that gave us a lot of insight. And I listened to a lot of insight into what day one leadership is. You were touching on a lot of things about when you're starting from day one. And I think with things like addiction and mental health and, and habit changing, it's you're deciding when day one is. Mm-hmm. You're on your own schedule and your own time frame. But as a student, we're we're told what day one is. Day one is the first day that you go to a class, you go on campus, you're meeting you know, your, your peers. Um, and you're meeting the people who are going to be your bosses for the next four, or in my case, eight years. And I want to get a little bit more like into this, into the, what you would say to a student who works in a professional environment, like a medical student who's typically at the bottom of the totem pole. Like how, how can they use the idea of day one leadership to empower from the bottom up? Well, again, I don't know a couple of things. One, 
the idea isn't, you know, every day is day one, I think is a key piece, like every single day is day one. And it's not indicating uh, that every day one won't be different. It's saying no matter how different each day one is, there are certain things that are non-negotiable. Also the idea, look, I don't, I haven't gone through a medical education. So when you say a med student, I will point this out to you. You're not the bottom of the totem pole for any patients that with whom you interact. You're not the bottom of the totem pole for all of the fellow students who are around you. Like, let's face it, you folks are doing this. You folks, when did I become all folksy? You guys are doing this <laughs> to serve fellow students, right? So you're not the bottom of the totem pole in every aspect of your life. In that one perspective, you are. But I, I will say that one of the fundamental premise, premises of See, now I'm all paranoid about how smart you folks are. One of the fundamental <laughs> premises of day one leadership is we acknowledge you're not always in charge of what you have to do every day, but you're always in charge of who you are. And the idea is that we're trying to put behaviors into your day every day where you can fully be in charge, at least for those individual moments of actually living up to the person that you claim to be. Because what happens is, yes, you're low on a... Uh, bureaucratic structure, but you can't allow that to say, okay, well then I'm unimportant because ultimately this is the part of your life that you do have control over. And we're not trying to teach people how to gain more control or become more powerful. Well, uh, sorry, more control over the people around them or become more powerful or deny the fact that there are certain times in your life where you simply don't have as much autonomy or power, but you're always in charge of who you are. So what I would always say to people is that it's not about being told when day one is it's deciding that every day, is the first day of your leadership commitment. Because what that does is it says, you know what, this is, no matter what blows up in my face today, I will have accomplished X, Y, and Z that are tied to who I wanna be. Because one thing I think we've all learned, whether we're aware of it or not, is the phrase, I'm the type of person who, always followed by a lie. It's always followed by bullshit, right? If someone says, I'm the type of person who, I just tune the hell out because they're about to tell me some, a lie. Because what's true about who you are isn't, you don't proclaim it, you demonstrate it. And so, yeah, there's a lot of areas in your life where you don't have a lot of power, but this ability to say, these values will be a part of every day of my life, doesn't matter where you are on the totem pole, ultimately you always have that control. But bear in mind, you are low on the totem pole in this one aspect of your life. And obviously it's a huge aspect, but you're not, when you start dealing with patients, I don't know where you are in your medical education, but I know at some point you do, you are not the bottom of the totem pole to them. They sure as hell don't know the difference. Um, you're not the bottom of the totem pole to the people you care about, that you date, that are in your family, and to your fellow students. So always be careful with those sort of ideologies because the whole idea of day one is to say, let's focus on the stuff we have power over and stop sort of diminishing ourselves because of where we fall in a bureaucratic structure of an organization, of an education, of a, of a career for, for lack of a better term. Because look, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure the medical field is pretty structured and there are some egos kicking around who do associate titles and accolades with being a good person. And ultimately, one thing I think we're all learning now and you are definitely going to is that being brilliant, uh, being incredibly skilled doesn't necessarily make you a good person. And it's so easy in your desire to become an extraordinary physician to substitute and put to the side the person that you want to be through it all. Something I keep hearing you reiterate is this idea of what's within your control. Mm -hmm. And Peter and I both talk about this a lot because we like to read Stoic philosophy. And one of the main ideas there is, you know, you don't control what happens around you. You control how you respond to it. And so focusing on what we can control is something that we love to talk about and love to ponder, you know, how can we relate this to our everyday lives? And, and there's a difference there too, the react and respond thing. Um, because you can control how you respond, but you can't control how you react. And I just wanted to throw that out there. I think a lot of people judge themselves because they feel anger. I mean, if you're stoic philosophers too, like the whole idea of like, let's avoid, let's not feel anger, let's not feel jealousy. I, I know I'm not necessarily getting it completely right. But I think a lot of people get judge themselves because they're angry, because uh, they're jealous, because they're a little bit deceitful. And I think that that's because there's this concept out there that good people find a way to overcome negative emotions. And I think it's a crock. I think that you cannot control how you react to things in your life. Emotions exist evolutionarily to keep you alive. Anger, fear, jealousy. For most of human history, 
kept us alive. Now they're maladapted for the social world we exist in. But when we lived in a world where most of the threats to our well-being were physical, our emotions kept us alive. Now we live in a world, for those of us lucky enough to live in the Western world, in a world where the primary threats to our well-being are social and emotional, and our emotions aren't set for that. But we just have to realize we are going to react in negative ways. You cannot control how you react to things. You can control how you respond to your reactions because there's an extra spot between reaction and response, and that is a thought. So the key isn't to figure out how to not be angry, not be jealous, not be afraid. The key is to recognize that quickly and then form your response to that. And so one thing I just wanted to say when we talk about things you can control, there are so small a percentage of people on this planet who can actually control how they react to things. But I think we can train ourselves to respond to those reactions. But for what it's worth, I just wanted to say to people, please stop judging yourself as being weak or of, of questionable character because you can't stop yourself from feeling angry. Like it's okay. How you respond to that anger, that's a whole different thing. There's an idea from Viktor Frankl that talks about the gap between stimulus and response. And it's exactly what you're talking about. How can we widen that gap between when something happens and when we think, think about it, you know, apply how big it actually is and then respond in a correct way. And is there, is there a better person to read than Viktor Frankl on this too? Like if anybody out there hasn't, like it's just anytime you start to feel overwhelmed, I just remember his writing. And I just remember some of the specific scenes he laid out and remember that if he could and if other people like him could, there's no way that we're facing something right now that we, we can't find a way to do that. But I do think it, it has to be it has to be practiced. But yeah, anybody out there listening who hasn't read Viktor Frankl's book, like pick it up. We actually did a two part series on the idea of tragic optimism. And yeah. that's because we thought we also think it's super important that everyone going through anything difficult or, or any sort of trial who's really kind of in that formative stage of finding out what they want with their life, how do they add value to their life? They really have to sit back and reflect. And I, and I agree with you. I think Victor Frankl's work is fantastic for that. I just can't believe there's, there's so little anger in it. Yeah. You know, like it's, I'll be open. Like one of the reasons I talk a lot about reaction versus response is it's self-serving is because you know, over the last two, three years, some, some difficult things have happened uh, in my, my life. And there's just this, this simmering anger underneath it, which is hard when I do what I do. You know, you've seen the TED Talk. I, I want to do good in this world, but I also have to recognize I am really, really angry and hurt a lot in, in the last few years. And I, I react as a result, and I'm trying to stay on top of that. But it's always good to, to remember. It's so hard to read some of that and be like, how do you not feel angry? Uh, because I'm still processing that. But I think that being aware of it helps us all start to try to be better, to identify a desire to be better. But to see people out there who manage it and then don't judge other people for not getting there yet, I think is a powerful thing to try to do. That's why I'm so open about the fact that I'm, some people call me a motivational speaker and I try to be open about the fact I'm pretty pissed at a lot of stuff mm -hmm. and I want to do good things in the world, but man, there's some stuff that annoys me. And there's an election coming, so it's just 10 times worse. An election in Canada or election in the U.S.? Uh, election in the U.S. You, you guys pretty much dominate. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, we, we know about that. We've had three elections in this country, in, like in different provinces, in the last two weeks. No problem. Harley was in the news. You guys, you guys suck up a lot of attention. Probably because your country has the ability to destroy the <laughs> earth several times over. Probably. Um, but I wanted to get back to this idea of response. You've been quoted as saying that one of your goals is to add value to every interaction you take part in. So what, what does Drew think before he responds to that helps him identify that this is what I'm going to say or what I'm going to do right now is going to help me add value to this interaction? Yeah, I think the question always too is that you try desperately to identify what the person across from you might be afraid of. Uh, and that's hard, right? Sometimes it's just a really quick interaction, but most of the dysfunction or the unhappiness in this world is rooted in fear. Like you're going to lose something, you're going to fail at something. And so to be able to say, even when you get up to a cashier who's having a really rough day, you know, you're, they're afraid that it's not going to get any better that day. And so in that moment, by identifying their fear is that they've got three more hours of the crap they put up with, with everybody in line or people, you know, and it's tough to frontline workers now, like 
there's a, a political difference over whether you wear a mask in a store or not. So all of a sudden, these individuals are now also being you know, attacked for things that aren't in their control. But what they're afraid of is it just won't stop. What they're afraid of is that they're going to crack under this, uh, under this constant onslaught of being treated like less than they are. And I think that in that moment, when you can sort of take a moment and be like, what would I be afraid of in this moment? And then finding a way to interact, a, a moment of smile, a, a tossing a chocolate bar on the counter, and then when it gets to it, saying, no, no, that's for you. Uh, those types of moments, for me, it's like, how can I find a way to give this person something they didn't know they needed and they didn't know they wanted in this interaction? And part of the mindset, too, is like, I try to interact with everybody, assuming not a single person has been nice to them all day. And there's something, of, I know that's such a dark way, but that is such a interesting way of framing how you want to enter into a conversation. If just, I guess if you think about it, if before you went into a room, you were told that the person in this room has been treated like crap by everyone who talked to them today, you then have a decision on how you want to treat them. And almost all of us would seize the opportunity to be the change there, right? To say, I, like, I have a chance here to make this person's life significantly better. We seize it. But I just kind of try to imagine that's the case with everybody. Some people very quickly let you know that hasn't been the case, but it really does change how, because you, it reinforces to you how much an individual interaction with this person can change the course of how they feel in that moment. And I like being reminded of that. And so I've sort of trained myself to be like, what are they afraid of? And let's imagine no one has been even remotely kind to them today. And it really does impact your, the way you interact with other human beings. Now, very quickly, sometimes they make me be like, okay, no, screw you. But you try to go into every interaction with that concept. And I find it really helpful, just those two things. One of my favorite speeches of all time is This is Water by David Foster Wallace. I don't know if you've listened to it, Drew. A hundred times, my man. Okay. The full one, too. The 20-minute version oh, yeah. is a 10-minute. Oh, yeah. No, uh, but yeah, one. man, it's, it's so great. Yeah, so you're basically talking about the big idea that he touches on, and, and that's having empathy to the people around you. And so often it, we just go through life and we don't think about what other people are thinking. And it's so easy to not have empathy, to not think, no, this store clerk has been having a terrible day. How can you make it a little bit better? And so that's just something that I love that you brought up and just reminded me of that speech that, that is so amazing as well. And, and what's crazy too is I played that for a lot of people. And what really hits them all is how he died. Like people listen to that and it sounds... And I think that's a lesson too on, on the power of mental illness is to, for those who haven't seen this, go out and listen to the speech. And it's so hard because when I first heard it, I did not realize that he had died by suicide. And to listen to that talk and hear someone who has got it so figured out uh, and then to realize that even though he knew he couldn't win that fight uh, is a real testament, I think, to how seriously we have to take this. And because it's part of my life, it's a reminder for me to never take for granted how much I have mental illness under control. Like I do everything I can, but never ever fail to never stop respecting the power mental illness has. Um, it is dangerous. And sometimes we get lulled into complacency, but go listen to that talk. And then it's just such a, an eye opener when you realize that eventually he died by suicide because that guy had it figured out, but that doesn't mean that it's easy to do. Not to get all dark. <laughs> no not at all I, I i'm the one that brought it up so <laughs> in the second half of this interview we want to talk about something that's happening right now and that's the COVID 19 pandemic and it's something that that came out of nowhere and has, has touched all of us in a different way but one thing it's done especially is bring leadership to the forefront and we've seen how different people have taken this situation and acted upon it so what are some of the things that you think we can learn as far as leadership from what we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, one of the big things I try to talk about with the pandemic is ultimately it has, it has reinforced a feeling of powerlessness, I think, in a lot of us because it has taken away our ability to do things that we want to do. And as a result, one of the things I think often happens is when we have power taken from us in one aspect of our lives, we sometimes allow that to spill over and allow ourselves to be convinced that we've lost power in other parts of our lives. And so one of the things I've tried to learn from the pandemic is that ultimately we cannot allow ourselves to let the things that have been taken from us make us start to ignore the things that haven't. For instance, you know, I talk a lot of my work about 
answering questions every day. What have I done today to recognize someone else's leadership is one of those questions. And people have asked, well, how do we do that during the pandemic? And I start to realize what's been taken from us is the ability to do it in person often. But what we're doing is ignoring what we have right here, the ability to actually still reach out and impact people just in a different format. It hasn't taken this from us, but it's easy to feel that it has. The other thing that I've taken from the pandemic uh, is this. There are two categories of individuals, not just two, but two categories of individuals out there in the world right now. Those for whom the pandemic is the worst thing that has ever happened to them. And those where that is not true. And you can tell in a, just a very short conversation with people as they talk about the pandemic, which of those two categories people fall into. And the ones for whom this is not the worst thing they've ever gone through are dealing with it, I think, significantly better than those who are not. Not to say it doesn't impact us all negatively, but that to me has been a reminder that the crap we've gone through has made us better. And I, I always like to look at as we go through the pandemic, but mothers and, and fathers who have lost children, individuals who have lost loved ones, uh, husbands, wives, partners, uh, individuals who have, have uh, gone through war zones and, and deal with that, they are finding a more effective way to get through this, which to me is a reminder that the most difficult things that we have faced have set us up for the incredible difficult things we're going to have in the future. And I think that there's just a piece that comes with that knowing that what we're going through now, one, we've been prepared for by the things that have hurt us in the past, but also we are going to be better prepared for the worst things coming uh, down the road for us. And for me, like early on in the pandemic, it was all right because, you know, three years ago, the only person I've ever been in love with died by suicide. And, you know, my father died in May. And so it's one of these things where, especially after Anastasia died, there is a peace and a strength that comes from knowing that the worst thing that could ever happen to you has already happened to you. And there's a strength that, and, and honestly, I have that benefit in my life. It has, losing her, which I would do anything to, to pull back, has also created a, a mindset in my life where I'm sort of like, man, I went through alcoholism, bipolar, and finding the woman I love in her apartment. You want to take me down, you better bring some kryptonite. And so I think the pandemic should be a reminder to all of us that the things that, that wound us are the things that give us strength down the road. And I think that's one of the big things I pull from the pandemic is that the, the wounds that this is giving you are really setting us up for some of the bigger challenges that are going to be come, coming down the road in the future. So I wanted to one comment on something you said much earlier in that, which is we have, we have this, we have Zoom, we have face-to-face -face interaction. So I, I think it's why I, I really appreciate that you have your new setup with your fun brick wall and your, and your lighting and everything. I feels better than just like if we were all sitting at a zoom screen like this yeah. looking super I want to I want to say I appreciate that but the second thing is um you start talking about these two people these two categories of people not just the two but those who feel like it's the worst thing that's ever happened to them and those who it's not the case what do you think determines that for, for an individual and similarly how is this, maybe it can be a two-part question, but is this at all related to why some leaders have blundered while other leaders have found success in leading their groups, people, countries, cities, towns during and through the pandemic? I'm going to give you three of the most powerful words in leadership for your first question. Uh, what sort of differentiates the worst thing from one to others? And I'm going to say, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't. And I think that it's, you can attempt to empathize, but where people draw that line is incredibly personal. And all I think we can try to do is, is understand as best because we don't get to decide. I mean, we've all mm -hmm. seen that. We've all gone this like, well, people have it a lot worse in the world. But as a one brilliant woman once said to me, she was 18 years old of all things. She said, anything worse than what you're used to is pain. And honestly, that comparing your pain to other people is a pointless endeavor because you all have a different baseline for it. The second piece is uh, there's two different types of leaders are there. You mentioned their cities, their states, whatever the case may be. I said this to you before we started. There is a difference between politics and leadership. They're not necessarily the same. They're often mutually exclusive because I think the big difference is that leaders, if you want to know the difference between a politician and a leader uh, and to know if they're separate, look at how they use fear. Like leaders try to remove fear in order to help people succeed. And politicians add fear to try to win. To, and, and people are easy to control when they're afraid. And so I think that how do people lead cities and stuff? 
politics is what caused people to blunder. All right. It wasn't about how can we serve people for a lot of people. It was how can we get through this in a way that won't hurt us politically down the road. And given the divisiveness, particularly in the United States, I think that's what caused problems. When your leadership is not about adding value to people, when your leadership isn't about success, when your leadership is about winning, that's when things fall apart. The biggest thing that stands in the way of success is the desire to win. And for a brief period of time, at least here in Canada, one of the things that happened in the response to COVID is politics seemed to have gone away for a second. And these parties that can't stand each other sort of threw it all away and said, whatever, we'll deal with how much we hate each other in three months and we'll try to get through this together. And so as soon as, now, as soon as it comes back, that's when things start to get bogged down again, because it's not about success. It's about who can use this as a tool down the road. That's what causes leadership to blunder. Forget politics. This isn't anything at this point. If you're making decisions to try to win, it will always keep more people from succeeding. As soon as someone's trying to win, fewer people are going to succeed. That's what's causing people to blunder because in the face of COVID, still in their mind is how can we win at the end of this? And as long as that is the primary thing in your head, you will never truly make the best decisions possible because sometimes the, the real leadership decisions involves doing things that are going to make people mad at you. All real leadership decisions do that. All value-based decision-making does that. The key, I think, is when you make decisions, instead of looking at what's going to happen now, asking yourself, if I had to stand in front of a group of people I highly respect five years from now and explain this decision, how would I make it? How do I want to be able to tell this story? And I think that that is what's key. Winning versus success is what's causing people to blunder. And when, how do I win? Getting through this is not how do we all succeed. That's when stuff starts to fall apart. And the bigger the macro level leadership, political all the way down, the bigger the problem that is, which is why I try to focus on leadership on individual behavioral level, because that's a lot easier because the behaviors are supposed to be tied to your core values. And ultimately, that means figuring out what they are. And if your core value is how do I win, you're usually not going to add a lot of value to the people around you. I know you can take this from the individual level like you want to like you said you like to talk about or from you know the macro level scale but using the pandemic as a reference what lessons can we learn from this to take and improve our leadership moving forward one embrace the difficulty uh, and anybody out there who i don't know how you'd have time to do this as a medical student but all of you triathletes out there and your marathon runners and who came up with ultra marathon what kind of nonsense is that but ultimately embrace the suck is one of their slogan. Like for these real hardcore, like endurance athletes, I guess this phrase, embrace the suck, embrace the suck. One of the things I've tried to learn through that is to actually recognize what this is teaching for the future. Um, trying to think ahead and recognize what this is going to help us appreciate in the future. Trying to realize that this is an opportunity to sort of look back into our history and, and find ways to connect with people because connection is so important, even if it's just virtually. Remember back in March when all of a sudden we were all playing virtual board games and like I finally learned how to play the PS4 online and discovered I'm not good at anything. But that I think is a key piece is what is, what is going, what are we going through right now? Consciously asking ourselves, how will this equip me better in the future? I think actually asking that question, which is, that phrase, embrace the suck, is what I do. When something shitty happens, I do try to take a moment after allowing myself to react. I do try to take a moment to say, all right, well, how is this going to be useful in the future? Now, I have the bonus of being like, well, it'll make a good piece of a keynote. But I think that we all have pieces where we can take a look at that. Like, for instance, the pandemic, I stepped away from work for three months and became a server in my sister's restaurant uh, after dad died because I was we couldn't have a funeral, right? You couldn't. So how do you honor the life of someone this important? And I said, well, what would he most like to see us do? And I realized he'd love to see his kids work together. And so I took the opportunity to go and say, you know what? There's not going to be a lot of speeches. Let's go learn some shit about myself. And boy, do you learn a lot when you step into the service industry line. And so I look at that and say, this was so hard, but I'm better prepared in the future. Keep that first and foremost in your mind, I think. The toughest stuff that you have to face you embrace the suck and you start to ask, how will this make something in the future suck a little less?
to be scientific fun, in the terminology. <laughs> super scientific. Um, so fun fact about me, my first job was actually working in a restaurant uh, with a dishwasher. Don't Sorry. people suck? Like, oh yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah. It's so hard. <laughs> but I think one of the things that service teaches you, man, is that like, let's say that 50% treat you like you don't matter and, mm -hmm. and 40% can be total dicks to you. But man, that 10%, like that to me reinforced how we always say in our mind, we keep the negative first and foremost, but then when someone else does something positive, it, there's just something in the face of something positive in the face of so much negative at the end of a shift. That was a big lesson for me, which is it's not, all the idiots I remember, or I'll remember them, but then just before I sort of file the night away as a success, a failure, whatever, I always remember that one or two people who went above and beyond. It's a reminder of how much brighter lights seem in darkness for what it's worth. And, and you don't know how on the head you hit medical curriculum, because like there are a lot of things that, you know, when I'm going through this, I feel like I don't really get what the point of it is. And I try really hard and sometimes I still miss it. But one of the things that we don't have, like I was telling you earlier, is leadership training, which is why we started this podcast in the first place. You don't have to get specific, but I guess what I want to know from your perspective, what would you put into a curriculum for, let's just say, future doctors to, to become the better leaders that you would want to see as someone helping them? Yeah, it's tough, right? Because I don't know what the, the physician experience is like. But a couple of things that I would definitely want uh, to mention. Uh, one, that one of the things that makes it so hard to make tough decisions is we don't know what criteria we're using to make decisions. First thing I try to tell anybody as we go through any programs that I work with is you have to take the time to define the things you want to define you. So if you want to be someone of uh, generosity, if you want to be someone of integrity, someone of respect, you have to take a moment to say, integrity is a commitment to what? You have to imagine someone highly intelligent walking up to you saying, English is not my first language. I've never heard that word before. Can you explain it in the simplest terms using the phrase a commitment to? Because most of the, most of the values that we use to judge ourselves and judge other people, we have never defined. And if you don't define the values you want to define you, if you don't say, these are the behavior is consistent with those. If you don't turn it into a finish line, so you know when you cross it, you could be, you probably are, embodying integrity, respect, accountability every day, but you're never giving yourself permission to celebrate that fact. And the celebrations in our lives and our careers give us momentum, they give us strength, they give us faith in ourselves. And I believe setting goals is planning celebrations. And we set goals for our careers, we set goals for our financial lives. I think that leadership is spending just as much time and just as much energy and resources setting and chasing goals for your character every day as you do for your job and for your career and for your financial life. Because ultimately, too often our lives are driven by our to-do list at the expense of our to-be list. And without getting into too much specifics about the actual day one process, what we effectively are trying to do is when you identify your values and you define what they mean, you can actually use them as criteria for decision-making. Because if you haven't identified your values and defined what they mean right now, what criteria have you been using to make decisions your whole life? Because let's face it, once you have your values clear, your decision-making is simple but not easy. You look at the options available to you. You look at the values you have said, these are what, who I want to define me as a person. And you ask which one of these options is most consistent with those values. And we embrace the fact, as sucky as it is, that often the option that's most consistent with your values sucks. It doesn't allow you to get what you want, avoid punishments. But if you haven't identified and defined your values, what criteria have you been using to make decisions? And my guess is for most of us, and, I, and I'm including myself in this, the criteria that most often we've used to make decisions in our lives is which option will avoid the most consequences right now. And, and that's not leadership decision-making. So the first thing I say to anybody, what would be in a curriculum for physicians or anyone, is what are the values you want to live every day because your job will make it easy to ignore doing things that will embody those values because you're so busy doing your to-do list. Try to work your to-be list into your to-do. And the other piece that would be in, in any curriculum I do for physicians is to help them understand, as you said, bottom of the totem pole, 
the power of making another individual, uh, a human being feel seen and how sometimes the medical establishment, because you're overwhelmed and there's so much to do and it has to happen so fast. And I can only imagine the work you have to do to protect yourself emotionally from some of the things you deal with, that it can be very easy and almost necessary to disconnect yourself from the humanity of the people around you. Always remember that at the very least in your job every day, you will give people the opportunity to feel seen. And also remember that illness can take someone's humanity away from them in a profound way. You can feel less than you are. You can feel like you have no longer control over your body, of your mind, of your mobility, of who you are. And ultimately, when you stop feeling as if you're seen as a person, when you lose your humanity, I don't think it's possible necessarily to truly sometimes recover from that. And so I always would tell every, every physician out there, I know you have to control your emotional bank, but never forget in that moment that somebody has the opportunity to feel seen. Sometimes it's the patient, sometimes it's their loved ones. And I, I you know, not to get dark, but when we took Anastasia to the hospital, it was pretty clear we thought she was gone. But when the doc, you get to the hospital and they, you give them your name and they sort of look sort of awkwardly around and then they take you to this little room and it doesn't take long to figure out what the room is for. Uh, and the doctor came in and everything he said was this incredibly technical scientific thing. And I get it because I don't know how long his day had been and I don't know how many lives he saved that day. But I do know in that moment, he talked to me about someone I loved very much as if they weren't a person. It was terms about lividity and this and what that meant and where things had shown up like, and, and what the actual trauma was that had killed her. But at no point did he talk about her as if she, what she was to me. That one was a unicorn. All right. Like someone that has this powerful, extraordinary uh, remarkable control over you and everybody that you talk to, you may be talking about their unicorn, um, something that has immense power over them uh, and matters a lot. So one of the things I would talk about is how do we keep in mind how you can give or take people's humanity from them by the way you interact with them and the way you talk to them and the way you talk to their loved ones. And I can only imagine how difficult your job is, but I will tell you, I witnessed firsthand the power of how dehumanizing it can be. And I think it made it harder to recover from what was already a very traumatic day. Never forget for a, just a moment that everybody you talk to is somebody else's unicorn, as goofy as that sounds. Um, just even if that image of a goofy horse with a rainbow tail and a horn shows up in your head as you walk into uh, an examining room after a 16 hour shift, if just for a second that flashes, then maybe I've said something good on this podcast. This kind of brings it back full circle to your idea of the lollipop moment, which is you never, I understood it as you never really know what, what other people around you are feeling or going through and, and the impact that you can have on, um, on someone's future. And after I listened to your podcast, I was thinking to myself, well, it can happen with good things, but it can also happen with bad things. Yeah. We carry, so, we carry an emotional sword with us that mm -hmm. has two blades. Um, is the way I kind of think of it. I endearingly call that a warhead moment. I don't know if you know what warheads are, but they're, they're a terrible candy that just oh, tastes I, like bitterness for oh, the worst. I call it a warhead moment. <laughs> I, I, I love those, man, because they, like, they're one of the rare candies that's actually <laughs> sour when they claim to be sour. But I thought you were like warhead moment. I'm just like, you know, like nuclear warhead. But It, it could be yeah, that too. It, like, it's a double entendre. It, it's, it's an intense <laughs> look. And again, I do recognize when I talk to people that, that I come from a place of privilege, not just in terms of my job isn't as hard as yours necessarily, or it's hard in a different way, but also I'm a straight white guy talking about, you know, oh, I, I have mental illness. Well, yeah, but I also own my own company, have financial independence. So it's a lot less punishment for me to be open about these things, my alcoholism, my bipolar, my, the battles with my weight than it is for a person of color working uh, two jobs or, or a single mom doing the same thing, or a member of the LGBT community who you know, oh, be yourself, live your values. Well, historically, that has not worked out for large swaths of the population. Same thing when I'm saying to doctors, like, take a moment to recognize these warhead moments. And I'm sure some are like, you clearly have never had to see a patient after 17 hours on your feet when there's a pandemic going on. Uh, so I, I do get that. But I, I guess I wanted to say that the effort can be, making the effort can have a profound impact. Uh, because 
I'm sure he's an extraordinary doctor. I'm sure he has done amazing things. He works in a major city's um, emergency room. But I walked through the world remembering that the news I got that she was gone never actually used her name or acted like she was a person. And I get that I'm sure there's a, a, a defense mechanism in there, but wow, I'll always remember it. At the same time, my, my doctor, my actual family physician acted in a way that I will, that probably helped save my life in terms of her ability to connect, empathize and make me feel seen through all of that. You have a, you deal with people at some of the scariest, most difficult, and in some cases, most traumatic days of their life. And it's so weird. Some of you who've gone through a trauma might know this, but the individual moments in the hospital or at the scene where a, like a police officer or a nurse or a doctor, like it's almost like when you look back on the scene, everything is in slow motion except that one moment where the nurse saw you as a person while you were lost in a hallway just standing there where the doctor saw that you didn't understand what you just said, um, either because it was too complex or you're just in such shock. Those moments are the one part of those days that don't slow down, that you remember clearly. And, and you get that gift. Um, you can save lives. You're being trained how to save lives, but you can also save the semblance of humanity. You can also save dignity. And illness takes dignity away from people. You have the ability to always make them feel as if there's still a piece of it there. And that can be the biggest gift that you give. That, in some ways, is saving a life. Uh, and so I know maybe that sounds cheeseball, hyperbolic, I don't know, but you spend enough time saying goodbye to friends in hospitals, you start to realize how powerful people in the medical community can be in terms of what they can create in an emotional moment as much as they can a medical one. Drew, I want to say thank you so much for sharing that and being transparent with us. And I know that was for me, that was extremely powerful to hear that and to hear how much of an impact that we can make, even if... You know, we're just going through our day and doing our job it's just to be able to impact somebody's life in that very emotional and very important moment in somebody else's life. I have goosebumps. Yeah, I, I can't <laughs> say enough. One thing that really has got me in this world is I didn't realize how violent it was to try to save someone's life. Like that's the, like, I know that sounds like an odd thing, but witnessing people trying to save a loved one's life is a very violent act. It's just the way it has to be. Um, but when after that, because you're not only are you dealing with the, the fear, but you're watching this, this violence happen in front of you, if it, sometimes you witness it, for a doctor to acknowledge that, to take a moment, um, it, it means a lot. And I can only imagine how much effort it's going to take in, the, in everything else you have to remember and everything else you have to go through. Um, you won't always succeed at it, but every extra time you do will stick with someone forever. Um, and so I think, you know, you're, you're taking on a lot. And thank you for that. It's such an important role and it's only going to get more important and it's being thrust to the forefront now. You have an, like, it's pretty exciting the opportunity you get, the respect you get in society. And I still don't know if it's worth how hard it must be to get through it, but you change lives. You save lives, but at the same time, you're not only, you don't only have the lives of your patients in your hands, you have everybody who loves them. And I know that's a lot of pressure, but it doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. But I think it does mean you always have to be human. And I, I can imagine fewer jobs that can pull the humanity from someone like the one you've chosen to do. So hold on to it because when you hold on to yours, you can give it to other people. Thanks, Drew. This has been a blast. Yeah, we, so we, we had a lot of fun too. I really enjoyed this. I don't know about you, Caleb. Yeah, um, I definitely did. But we like to end our interviews with kind of a question that we got from one of our previous interviewees. Uh, what are some books, your, let's say your top, I think we've cut it down to two, your top two books for leadership development for young, young leaders, burgeoning leaders? Yeah, given, given uh, just trying to think of your audience, one, I still think everything Patrick Lencioni has ever written is oh amazing, goodness. easily accessible. Um, the advantage is sort of a, an overview of it, um, but I always love the five dysfunctions of a team. I think it's really important, especially if you're gonna be working in types of places you folks are with a lot of different people. Uh, good to Great is the greatest management slash leadership book ever written, but I don't necessarily think that it, it's gonna be as useful to, to your group. Um, so I, I like Lynchpin, Are You Indispensable by Seth Godin. Seth's an interesting, uh, uh, an interesting character. Anything that, you know what? Anything Brene Brown writes. 
Um, that I think for your particular audience, I think that Lencioni on a very practical management level on how to deal with other people and Brene Brown on the power of empathy. Uh, she's got a couple daring greatly. And I forget the name of, of the first one, although I loved, loved, loved the book. Um, so I, I can't say enough about Brene Brown. Uh, I think she's, she's an epic genius and, uh, all the attention she gets is actually well-deserved. So, um, those two, I think Patrick Lencioni's five dysfunctions of a team and Brene Brown, there's both Daring Greatly and I think Braving the Wilderness is the other one, but it's, it's focusing on the idea of empathy. Also, this is day one, a practical guide to leadership that matters. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. And, and trust me, saying that makes me like physically ill, but sometimes my publisher sees these things and goes, yeah, they straight up asked you for a book recommendation and you didn't mention yours. Because I'm not a douchebag. Uh, so I'll just throw that out as a joke. No, no, we wanna we wanna do our our part to like help support you too, any way we can. Well, I, I appreciate that, guys. The book actually helps you identify your own values and create your own uh, questions, which is tied to that behavioral trick we didn't really dive into. But uh, yeah, I, I just those are great. And honestly, watch TV, like watch the entire West Wing series. It will teach you a crap load about leadership. Um, yes, I'm one of those what do they call us bleeding heart liberal types? And so we tend to like that one better, like that show better than others. But uh, yeah, uh, there's, there's stuff worth watching that actually really gets you thinking. And for what it's worth, the West Wing is an extraordinary television experience that dives into what leadership and difficult decision-making and, and uh, making value-based decisions are really about. Drew, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It was so much fun. I definitely learned a lot and we're definitely thankful that you were able to come on. Man, an absolute blast. Keep doing what you're doing because what you're doing is adding value. You identified something that could help people and you did it. That's leadership. Give yourself some credit for it. And the last thing I'll say is that leaders never let someone who they know is a person of worth diminish themselves in front of you. You're probably, as medical students, going to watch a lot of people that you know are people of worth start to doubt themselves. Uh, it's a huge deal when you let them know the way they've impacted you. Just saying, oh, no, 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 you're great. You're great. Is it enough? But to say, hey, remember when I struggled with this and you were there? Don't tell me you don't matter, even if you can't figure this out. Thanks, Drew. Thank, Thank you, you, my friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We hope you learned something new or got a thought you can reflect on to further your own leadership development. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow. We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also connect with us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds, or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds. <laughs>